Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, and in, the, in this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Welcome to all who are visiting with us this morning. We're working our way through the book of Acts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at the text together. Father God, again, we thank you, praise you for the gift of your word, for divine revelation gifted to us. Help me to communicate it clearly by the power of your spirit, for the good of your people, for the salvation of all who are lost this morning. And that those in Christ would be greatly built up, reminded of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. The consequence of preaching the whole counsel of God is the title of the message. 
We left off last time with Paul um, in Ephesus. This, his third missionary journey. We read in verse 20 that the word of the Lord, notice, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The word of the Lord was growing. That does not mean that Paul increased his volume or he preached more sermons, but quite simply, God's word was overpowering the the hearts of men and women, of boys and girls, mightily, tremendously. And that is why the scripture declares that all who have been appointed by God to eternal life will eventually come to believe through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord, which, by the way, always creates a ripple effect. A ripple effect. First, hearts are transformed. That's regeneration. In realizing that you are redeemed, that you are forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future, realizing that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, you are promised an eternal inheritance, when you come to understand these glorious doctrines within Scripture, that changes the way you live. Gospel truth renews the mind. Gospel truth transforms the heart. It, It changes how you think, how you reason, how you live. In other words, there is a discernible difference with regard to the pattern of a Christian's life. It's very discernible, or it ought to be. When you follow Christ, it shows. It shows. It shows in your conversation. It shows in the choices that you make. It shows in the things that you no longer participate in. And here, that way, that pattern, that lifestyle began to penetrate this great city of Ephesus. That is to say, the result of of faithful preaching, of faithful teaching, of faithful living, and, and faithful evangelism will spark. The consequence is, is that it will spark fury of the evil one who pits the people of God against the forces of evil. He always has and he will until Christ returns, creating some form of persecution. Some form of persecution. The the avenue of which is hostile unbelievers against those who are children of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that opposition comes from either inside or from outside of the church, but a spirit-filled, bold church is always an effective church. A spirit-empowered, bold, gospel-proclaiming church that is not afraid to teach the whole counsel of God will somehow, in one way or another, be persecuted. Therefore, effectiveness and persecution go hand in hand. Now, that persecution may show up 
in the way of, of even ridicule from those who profess to be in Christ. When a church is given to preaching the whole counsel of God and we're not here to entertain you, you will receive ridicule from many who proclaim to be in Christ. Because the word of God is not enough. So again, effectiveness and persecution to some degree go together. Now, R.C. Sproul said this while he was alive. Quote, sadly in our day, we, the church, have been declawed, defanged, rendered politically correct in our culture, having become in many cases, at least in America, the church quiescent. Dormant, sluggish, ineffective. Now, if we are to be the church effective, if we are to be the church bold, the church courageous, the church committed, um, faithful to the Great Commission, that w- then we need to, to look back continually, constantly, to her apostolic foundation that we see right here in the book of Acts. They are our example. Because they stood against all opposition that the world could bring. Amen? And we see another account here in chapter 19 this morning. So that's the introduction. Let's look at the account. In verse 21, notice, now after these things were finished, pause there, okay, what things? Well, those things that we investigated last Lord's Day, um, after, after 12 disciples of John heard the entirety of, of the gospel, they were baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a mini Pentecost ensued. Verses five and six. Um, after three months of Paul preaching in the local synagogue, when some obstinate Jews began to speak against the gospel. Verses eight and nine. After two years of Paul's afternoon evangelism and teaching classes in the lecture hall of one Tyrannus, Verses 9 and 10, after displays of God doing extraordinary miracles through the hands of the Apostle Paul and drawing much attention in verses 11 and 12, after seven unbelieving Jews tried to exercise a demon in the name of Jesus in one who was possessed, and in return they were severely beaten by that man, all seven of them. Verses, verse 16, and after that book-burning ritual of spells and magic arts of those who had come to faith in Christ, verse 19, okay? After these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, when we get to chapter 21 and verse 17, we see that he does make it to Jerusalem. He was gladly received there. And as you all are well aware, he will eventually make it to Rome, where he will be beheaded for the sake of the gospel. Now, in verses 23 to 25, notice there's no small disturbance concerning the way. The way, that is Christianity. Christianity is known as the way, was known as the way during the early church because Jesus himself is the way. The church follows the one who is 
the way. So in Acts, we have seen typically that when persecution comes from outside of the church, it usually comes by way of unbelieving Jews, but not here. In this case, we see pagan opposition. A silversmith, one Demetrius, who, who was um, skilled and, and clever, at least as an agitator. Skilled and clever agitator. Now, friends, throughout church history, when someone correctly preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it comes with power, turning people from wickedness and to Christ, it's two parts of one coming to faith. You turn from your sin, you turn from your rebellion, and you turn to Christ. When that happens, those who sought to make money for the sake of people's wickedness become decidedly upset. When sinners come to trust in Jesus Christ, they they give up idols. Therefore, those who craft those idols lose business. Therefore, notice, there occurred no small disturbance. No small disturbance because, notice, Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. No little disturbance. That's what's before us. Now, this city of Ephesus was, was known as the, the, the center for the cult of Artemis, or otherwise known as Diana, your, your text may say. Um, she was the mother goddess of fertility. The mother goddess of fertility. And her image was believed to have been fashioned in heaven, and f- it fell from the sky. Notice in verse 35 that this image that fell from heaven what does that mean? Well, whenever debris fell from outer space in the ancient world, a meteorite, that is, that survives passage through the atmosphere, pagans thought it was a sign from heaven. They thought it was a sign from the gods. So this stone, this stone they believed, came from the hand of Zeus, this, this meteorite. So they would sit and they would stare at it until they imagined some Im- image within it. Some image that reflected a a deity, and then they would enshrine it. (laughs) They would enshrine it. So Artemis, this Diana, was known as as the goddess of the hunt. The goddess of the hunt also is is the moon goddess. And the the cult's um, idol image, the image of this Artemis, um, on her breastplate was the zodiac. Along her front were were numerous breasts, women, a woman's breast. Her torso was covered. And on her skirt, she had rows of animals, all all signs of fertility. She had bees, honeybees on on the side of the skirt. She was actually known as the queen bee. So here's the image of, of this idol. Now her temple, the temple of this mythological figure here um, in Ephesus was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Four times the size 
of the Parthenon. Go, you'll click on Parthenon later, and you'll see how large it is, and then times it by four. And you hear you have the temple of, of Artemis. Inside the temple, it was filled with eunuchs and priestesses and cult prostitutes. They all participated in pagan worship, which had to do with sensuality and sexuality. And it also served as a treasure house of gold and silver, and it served as our banks serve us this very day. So people would flock to Ephesus to see this great Ephesus, um, 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 edifice, sorry, Ephesus, edifice, and emphasis. <laughs> this temple of Artemis in Ephesus, what an edifice, what a tongue twister <laughs> that is. Now, around the temple, they would set up booths, they would, they would sell food. It was a very entertaining atmosphere. They would sell food. They would sell all sorts of trinkets, little statues, little images. They had silver images of the temple itself. They had images of Artemis, of Diana, that people would put in their backyards, or in that day probably on their rooftops, and they would, and they would recite their little mantras in, in front of this image. It's idolatry. Straight up, idolatry. And it kept this guild of silversmiths doing very lucrative business. You take the man's money away, there's going to be trouble. Amen? And here it is. Now, think about this. Paul has been preaching for two years in this city. Preaching and teaching teaching the whole counsel of God, proving how Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the only son of God. But up to this point, the gospel, as far as the, 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 the pagan masses go, has been pretty much ignored up to this point. Pretty much ignored. But when their stock market took a very large dip, it grabbed the attention of the tradesmen. There's no little dispute here. Two years, this brother is preaching, teaching, and something life-changing has been happening in this great city, the city of Ephesus. And then here's this Demetrius. Um, he's the spark that lit the fire in Ephesus when Luke records him saying, verse 26, notice, you see, you see in here, okay, now, now catch this. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Oh, newsflash. Oh. You know, in our reading this morning from Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 8, again, you know what they are? They are, says the Bible, parents, you don't like me to say this word, but it's in Scripture. They are altogether stupid and foolish. Stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. Their idol is, is metal. That, that's biblical terminology, stupid and foolish, for those who create gods out of God's creation. Wood, metal, or one's imagination. Friends, the natural man, the sinful man or woman left to themselves, but by the grace of God, they're always trying to create something to worship because we're made to worship. 
were created to worship our creator, and they instead fashioned something in his place. And since truth has no company with falsehood, the greatest impulse within fallen humanity is the compulsion to not only suppress the truth of God by way of general revelation, that which is created, but also to recreate God in one's own mind. That's Romans 1 stuff. Idolatry, as defined by the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, is, and I quote, an attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, trust, and obedience. Again, idolatry is an attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, trust, and obedience. It's amazing he doesn't simply just strike us dead. But his mercy, but his mercy, but his grace. Now, there would have been no problem at all here in Ephesus had Paul entered into town saying, Artemis worship, well, it's great. It's great. Artemis worship is great. I simply have something to add to that. Faith in Jesus Christ will make you happy too. Would there have been any problem? No. Artemis and Jesus together will make a fuller life. After all, all roads lead to God. All temples point to heaven. I mean, after all, isn't the most important issue that we just, we all get along? Okay, here, take this coexist sticker and go put it on your chariot. (laughs) Put it on your chariot out in the parking lot. And let's coexist. Which means all roads lead to God. And you better respect it. No, he preached contrary to one in devotion to the other. And that, my friends, is the stumbling block to this very day. Herein lies the rub. I, said Jesus, am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Period. If you're an unbeliever here today, or you're a coexist person, you believe all temples point to God, all roads lead to heaven, so long as you're sincere, let me tell you this, in love, you're sincerely wrong. Repent. Change your thinking. And listen to this one who claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, and who proved it by way of his death and resurrection. Repent of that evil. Turn to Christ. Because you need the righteous merit merit of another. And there's only one. You place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, you get his merit, all his righteousness placed upon your account, and you'll come to realize he took your sin on the cross, the punishment that's due. Repent and believe, and you will be saved from what? From God's wrath, eternal hell. And you'll be there all alone, unless you believe that it's faith and trust in Christ alone. Amen? That's the gospel, in a nutshell. Notice, this Paul has persuaded many people to turn away from our, what? Ways saying God's made with hands are not God's. Can you believe anyone would say that? How narrow-minded can one possibly be 
to say that. That's intolerance. That is intolerant. He, Paul's an exclusivist. How dare he? This is nothing less than hate speech. This is Paul peddling religiophobia. And anyone who follows this Paul is a religiophobe. Do you hear this? Do you get this? Nominal Christians, if they're Christians at all, when they hear those kind of accusations, crumble in fear. And I question whether you're a Christian. They crumble. And they buy in to the rhetoric. Arrogant Christian. Christians aren't arrogant. We're not so smart. We simply trust divine revelation. By the way of God's grace through faith, you know, I didn't invent Jesus saying he's the only way, the truth and the life. I didn't invent that. Those are his words. The epitome of arrogance is to reject the words of Jesus who is the Christ. That's your problem. You take it up with him, not me. The idea, is that, that, the idea that, that all roads lead to God so long as your sincere religious relativism, relativism is a man-made notion. Notice I get ahead of my words sometimes. So notice this Demetrius. He talks among his union brothers, the silver guild here, about the money they're losing. But since that probably won't sway the masses, he needs to talk negatively about this goddess and her shrine. Notice. Verse 27, not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, being regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. This guy sounds like the politi politically correct kooks of our day. Everybody's doing it. Did you notice? Did you catch this? Everybody's doing it. Obviously, not all of worship, not all of Asia is worshiping this Artemis, or they wouldn't even be having this discussion. This is still the manipulative tactic that the world uses to this day. Everyone does it. This is the norm, and if you're not on board, there's something wrong with you. If you don't agree with us. Friends, we are, in, we, we are influenced daily to swim downstream. To float, actually. To float downstream. The masses say what they say. They reason as they do, most often by what they hear. By what they hear. It's pumped into them. And then they march in rhythm out of fear of being rejected. Of being accused is a hater. So here, this Demetrius, notice, he appeals to the popular vote, the typical political approach of mob psychology, by the way. This is a principle you want to study if you're studying sociology, by the way. Tactics don't change. This is 2,000 years ago. 
Let me pause. I know many of you are very uncomfortable. Is it hot in here? Okay, the AC's broken. So we're going to open those middle doors, please, somebody. Kick them open, and we'll ask that those in the foyer be mindful of the fact. Okay? All right. I think that's why I'm stumbling in my speech. Pray that I focus. So here's Demetrius trying to manipulate the people to be fearful. Fearful. Fearful of what might happen to their security and to their identity. Because all of their security and identity is wrapped up in Artemis and her temple. How how easily are people manipulated by the rhetoric of our day? It's so hard to carry on a conversation with anyone without hearing last night's 6 o'clock news rhetoric nonsense. They just regurgitate it. Think for yourself for a moment, would you? You must say to them, let's try to reason together. Come, let's reason together with truth that is absolute. So he manipulates them. You think about, I, I think about the earth worshipers of our day. We're all paranoid about global warming. Oh, seriously. You know, science shows that the universe will end in heat death. And guess what? They're correct. They're correct. Things are warming up. And if God ever opens their blind eyes to move past secondary causes and look to the primary cause, they'll realize this, as declared in Holy Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, same word, same authority, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for what? Fire. Reserved. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away and with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So indeed, they're correct. The universe will end in heat death. Amen. Well, read the Bible. Okay, read the Bible and you say, wow, the scientists, they're just getting it right. They're starting to get things right. You go all the way back to Job, the oldest known document known to man, and read scientific facts there. The book of Job. Amazing. So here, Demetrius, um, he embellishes, works off people's fears to create paranoia and pandemonium. Have things changed? No. No. Again, the same tactic at hand. Verse 28, when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion and they rushed in with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Now this amphitheater was carved out of a mountain in Ephesus and it seated 24 to 25,000 people still there today if you want to go see it. It's amazing. And they're chanting here over and over again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is mob confusion. People are caught up in the moment. This is like being in the midst of a mob in the middle of a street, you know, where they're starting fires and turning cars over. You're there. You don't know why. What are they saying? What are they chanting? Then you start pumping your fist. Yeah, what they say. 
Yeah, what, what, what they're doing, what they're saying. And people, they get all caught up and a good portion of the people involved have no idea why they are there. And that's the confusion we see here in verse 32. They're clueless. And there's irony here. I mean, you got to see the humor in Scripture. There's irony here in Luke's statement that the audience didn't know why they were in this amphitheater. Now catch this. The essence of, of the Greek comedy theater was to make fun of the weaknesses of human beings. So one of the tricks of the day was to get someone up on stage who didn't know why they were there in order to make fun of them. A very popular act in the day. So here, the irony of all this is that there's a group of people here in a theater and they know not why they're there. That's the humor of the Bible right there on display. No idea. They're caught up in the heat of the moment, all emotionally distraught here, and they go at it, notice verse 34, for two hours. For two hours. And back in verse 30, notice two of Paul's friends have been dragged into the amphitheater. You know, notice Paul doesn't look for an escape route. He wants in. This man has a, a, a spine made of steel. He wants in. You know, he's probably thinking, if he were here in our day and this was going on, he'd say, hey, man, there's 20,000 people in there. Give me my Bible. Give me a microphone. I'm going in. That's Paul. That's, that's a man's man. This is my kind of man. Okay, this is a guy who's been beaten, whipped, in, imprisoned, and he's willing to go into the middle of a riot. And I assume to preach the truth, more of the truth. You know, I've preached in places, I've spoken in places, rather hostile situations. I've been mocked, I've been ridiculed, heckled, cursed at, and cussed at. But I have never tasted the least of that which this brother tasted. Never been beaten. So here's a riot. But notice the disciples would not allow him to go in. They were like, no, 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 Paul, you're not going. Forget it. This is a suicide mission. You're not going in. And notice that even some of the men who ran things in the city, his friends, known as Asiarchs, Asiarchs, that's, typically, that's just a title for the political wheels of the day. Ephesus was an independent land that Rome allowed to run their own government, but you had political wheels that would, would see that people adhered to Roman law. So if they were from Galatia, they would have been referred to as Galliarchs or Assyria, Assyriarchs. So these are Asia, Asia Minor, they're Asiarchs, PR men of the Roman Empire. And don't forget that Paul was a Roman citizen, so this may have benefited him as well because you don't just beat a Roman citizen without, without a trial. So he used that you know, to his advantage. So here's God in his providence protecting the brother. And then notice this town clerk who's, who kind of serve as a mayor. He settles the crowd down. And notice he uses the same argument that Demetrius uses in the first place. We see this um, beginning of verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? and of the image which fell down from heaven. 
So, um, since these are undeniable facts, did you catch that? Since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do not do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. Let's take it to court, in other words, he says. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, while you are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events. That was a Roman no-no, by the way. So he, he keeps peace. Since there's no real cause for it, and in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering after saying this. He dismissed the assembly. So these Asiarchs seem to be saying, and in fact, this town clerk seems to be saying um, about Paul's friends that, you know, I may not agree with what they believe, but they are good citizens. They are good citizens. In fact, they're the very best citizens of the empire. And should we not be good citizens as Christians? Yes, we ought to be. Now, that's great. Okay, that's the account. The rest of our time, I want to focus in on some lessons for us as believers in the 21st century that we glean from this text. Lesson number one. Lesson number one. And we learn this from Paul because he never falls prey to this. Lesson number one is that church must always be very careful that she doesn't exchange the true gospel of Jesus Christ for the social gospel of man in order to gain approval of society and government. You hear what I'm saying? That is to be patronized and honored by society. You know, ministries that are centered on cultural and social issues, you know, let's go clean up the community, let's be great citizens, let's take our camera crews with us and let's show the world how good we are within society um, can be very dangerous if you're not preaching the gospel. One pastor said it like this. He said that he gets a bit shaky when churches receive awards from either civil, state, or national government for rendering such marvelous service to the community. Why is that? Why does it shake him? Because that's all they're known for. That's all they're known for. He said this, he went on to comment, quote, that would never happen in the book of Acts, ever. Now, I'm not saying that we, should, that we are to be um, anti-social, anti-community relations, but there needs to be a sense in which the church is the conscience of community, not the comforter of community. When the church begins to play sociological and political games, then it gets into trouble. End of quote. G. Campbell Morgan said it like this, the church persecuted has always been the church pure and therefore the church powerful. The church patronized has always been the church in peril and very often the church paralyzed. End quote. 
Now, we ought to make use of the privileges that are ours, amen, as the church of Jesus Christ in our communities, take advantage of the responsibilities granted to us, as did the apostle Paul and the other apostles, but may we never, ever be complacent so that the church gets caught up and swallowed up by the government, because three or four centuries after Paul, that's exactly what happened, otherwise known as the Roman Catholic Church. And the state began to dictate what goes on in and through the church. You see the danger? That's what happens when you do not preach the whole counsel of God. You're known as a group that, you know, that, that picks up garbage in the community. That's all fine and good. Or painting over graffiti, that's all fine and good. So long as you're still preaching and declaring the whole counsel of God. Amen? Amen. See, the church, how many times do I read on a daily basis how the church is, is caving to the LGBTQRST agenda? <laughs> right? They're crumbling. They're cowards. We don't hate those people. You want to really love those people? Then declare the gospel to those people. You want to say that God accepts you just the way you are? That's a lie from the pit of hell. You're only accepted by God in Christ, period. God doesn't love everyone unconditionally. The condition upon which his love is based is his son, period. Now, another applicable lesson that follows that here is not trust in Jesus and all your troubles will disappear. Because they won't. They'll be intensified, actually. The lesson here is the closer you get to Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, the more focused you are on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more likely you are to draw the enemy's fire against Christ. Because Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. I divide, said Jesus. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. That divides, but it also unites, does it not? Amen. We have brothers and sisters all over the world united in the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's through his atoning blood that we're accepted by God. Lesson number three. The propensity towards idolatry does not magically end the moment we're converted. Ooh, ouch. Ouch. We must fight against idolatry every day of our lives. Every day of our lives. The gospel comes to do what? It comes to save us, and as it saves us, it overthrows all the false gods in our lives. It overthrows false gods, false ideals about God. Through the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the true and living God, sending his son to this earth to save sinners, overthrows false gods in the lives of those who are his. Even Demetrius recognized this much. He saw that. It's undeniable. Thus, one reason is believers 
We must continually sit under the proclamation of the gospel, the whole counsel of God. Continually here, week in and week out. Cotton Mather, Cotton Mather, New England preacher, he once said this, and I quote, the great design, hey, listen, the great design of preaching is to reestablish the throne of God in the souls of men and women. To reestablish the throne of God in the souls of men and women. Why? Because our hearts are like running conveyor belts of idols passing through one after another. And again, as I often quote Calvin, the human heart is like what? An idol factory. So we must ask ourselves, okay, what am I passionate about? Let me ask you, what are you most passionate about? Things in your life. Consider for a moment. What what, what are you passionate about? And whatever it is, is likely a potential for idolatry. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying it, it is possible that your passion will lead to idolatry. And remember this, idols are ferocious. They demand that you feed them. And when I ask you this question, what are your passions? I I ask myself the same question. I've been asking myself that question all week. So I do not exclude myself from self-examination. Amen? So in this passage, what are these men and women passionate about here in this text? Well, obviously, it's their temple, that which is their security and their identity. Get that? Security, identity. Something that gives us security and provides identity is something we're passionate about. Now, we don't have temples that that honor Artemis, but we do have stadiums that people go to. Today... During the NFC and AFC playoffs, I will see grown men, grown, grown men with faces painted and wearing goofy, goofy outfits to mimic their, their little gods, right? And they think we're crazy. <laughs> they think we're nuts for worshiping a god you can't see, and then they get all painted up and geared up, and I've never seen such passion. It's, it's amazing. Shopping malls can be temples. Buying what you can't afford. Well, how's the saying? You buy what you can't afford to impress those that you don't care about or something like that. However it goes. And then you have a closet full of stuff with price tags on it. So shopping malls can be temples. The gym can be a temple. It's a place where you go to strengthen and, and to stroke the temple of your body. You wouldn't think of missing a workout. But church, hmm, that's up for debate. Those can be temples. Uh, There are the idols of success, control, the idol of control, comfort. This, This is a huge one for me, comfort. I like comfort. I enjoy comfort. And I have to be careful that that comfort's not my passion. Obviously, pornography in our day is a huge hook, huge hook, an idol. 
political affiliation can be an idol. American patriotism can be an idol. You know, I fly American flag at my house. I love my country. I love our military. Mainly I fly a flag because I honor and love our military. America is not your God. Oh, God blessed America? Guess what? He may have her under judgment right now, too. Nations come and go. Don't think we're special because we're not. We're an apostate people as a whole. The idol, oh, here's one. The idol of social media. If I don't have at least a dozen likes on my Instagram or Facebook by the end of the day to stoke my ego, I may fall into despair and depression. He didn't like my thing. Grow up. You know it's true. That's why you laugh. Amen? And I'm, trust me, I'm no better. That's why I don't have Facebook, because I probably get sucked right into it. And I'm a debater. So if someone says something stupid about the Lord, something blasphemous, I'm going to bite. That's bait. That's bait. So I just stay away. So, so question, where do you find your security? Where do you find your identity? What would cause you... And I ask myself this as well. What would cause us to cry out for two hours like these lunatics? <laughs> right? Well, the cable went out. <laughs> the cable affiliate was not going to, they're, they're, they're no longer going to carry Fox Sports, which meant that a couple weeks ago they didn't show the playoff games. I was up in arms. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Amen. I was livid. I'm on the internet trying to find out why and what and when and how. And can they resolve this by the AFC and NFC championship playoff game day? Right? See how we are. I don't want to expose too much of myself from up here. But <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, serious. On a serious note, let's wrap up. Jesus speaking to his disciples about the consummation of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 32, he said this to his disciples, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Back in Genesis chapter 19, the angel of the Lord told Lot to leave Sodom, and part of the exhortation was for he and his wife and his children do not look back. When God rained down fire and brimstone, when he does that, don't look back. And wife's, the lot of wife, what? Look back. She looked back and she became a pillar of, of salt. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah had been reduced to salt, everything that she found her identity and security in, she too became like that which she worshipped. G.K. Beale, in his fantastic book, all of his books are fantastic, this one entitled, We Become What We Worship, he said this, quote, Why did she resemble these destroyed cities? 
because her looking back indicated that she was more attracted to Sodom for her ultimate security than God, who had commanded them to go on their pilgrimage out of the city. She took more security in the city than in God, and thus had apparently become so identified with the city's ungodly attitude that even her judgment was identified with the city's judgment. End of quote. Um, fun fact, by the way, um, Beale footnotes that last sentence to one of his former students for bringing that illustration to his notice, one Rita Sheffalu, um, who attended here for a number of years before they recently just relocated to Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's a fun fact, amen? Okay, so, again, and I conclude, again, only the gospel only Jesus Christ, only the whole counsel of God declared can overthrow the thing or things to which we show so much allegiance. Idolatry. That kind of allegiance. So may we be more attracted to God and find our security in God and not idols of the heart. Amen? May God, by way of his grace, enable us to overthrow any and all false gods in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. And finally, may God, by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, give us the kind of boldness, courage, and gospel-minded focus that characterized the early church here in Ephesus under the leadership of one, Paul. Amen? To be the church effective, to be the church bold, to be the church courageous, and the church committed to her head, the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Lord, we do thank you for scripture, parts of which are so sobering. And Lord, we thank you for the example of, of, of Paul and these men standing so faithful to the end, um, experiencing so much, and tempted, um, no doubt, um, as the church is today, um, to be um, patronized by the government, uh, may we not be. May we be good citizens indeed. But, but above all else, may we not shy away from the truth, the whole counsel of God, the glorious gospel which destroys idols and help us to lead others in the way of light for your glory and their own good. In Jesus' name, amen.